today in the message, we're going to cover the discipleship path, following Jesus together. And when you think about a path, you think about a way. Jesus is the way. And this is all about Jesus. And in any relationship, there's times you make clear decisions and clear next steps forward in the relationship. We're going to have a unique opportunity today at the end of this message to come forward. And if God is leading you to make a decision, you're going to be able to come up front with some elders, with our prayer team, and I'll explain more. But I want to prepare you ahead of time that that's something we're going to do today. And that is good. That's normal. This is a house of prayer. This is a place we follow Jesus. And we're going to make decisions together, next steps together. I heard a prayer today, or actually this week, that stuck with me. Burn in us until we burn for you. And let's pray that together as we enter into prayer. Father God, we thank you that you are so good to us. Thank you for the Holy Spirit in us. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for our sins. And God, we know in your word it says, do not put out the Spirit's fire. And we pray that you would burn in us, that you would fill us with your presence until we burn for you, live for you, love other people, lay down our lives and transform us in this way, God. We know it's a bold prayer. We, we believe you to do it and we trust you in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We're following Jesus in our daily lives together. This is daily grace. And what are these specific steps we take in terms of following Jesus? There's seven we highlight that are straight from Scripture. And you see them up here. The first one is to make a decision, a first-time decision. Jesus is your Savior and Lord. We have people every weekend I think, who come and haven't made that decision yet. And that's, a, that's where it all starts. And that's by grace, not earned. What happens after you make that decision? In the Bible, the next step is water bath. It's not something like 20 years later. It's a great celebration. And you say yes in that step. And then find a church home. The Bible is very clear. There's local churches everywhere. One body with many local churches. And find a home. Don't just hop from church to church and search for churches for five years. Like be committed, be connected, get in a church family. And that includes also being in a group of people that are together, getting into the Bible, being on mission together, serving together, not just me, but we, and then using our gifts. God's given all of us gifts and it's so much more fulfilling to serve other people than it is to just be passive and be a spectator. And as you do that, you're also going to reach out. You're going to make disciples. What God has given to you, you're going to pass on to other other people and also lead people to Jesus. Share your faith, share the gospel, and then leadership. Stepping up when God asks you to in different realms. And it could be, you know, at the home, could be different roles at church, but what are the leadership roles where God is leading you as well? So you think about those, those seven that all come from scripture, but more so they come from Jesus and they come from the heart of the Lord. And we're going to do two things today. From Matthew chapter nine, really look at who is Jesus in the heart of God. And then we're going to see these steps lived out in the book of Acts. Acts, a lot of action going on. In the Gospels, we see interaction with Jesus. Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 9. Listen for the heart of God in this passage. This is Jesus who we follow. Matthew 9, verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. Now, Jesus summarizes the discipleship path in two words, follow me. That's his invitation to all of us every day. Follow me. You won't go deeper than follow me. And the setting in this passage is Capernaum. 
And that's where Jesus was living, growing up uh, as well, spent time north shore of Galilee. And there was a major thoroughfare from Damascus down to Jerusalem that passed by Capernaum. And with all that traffic and with all those goods, it was a popular spot for a tax collector to just charge people, overcharge people on the goods that they were carrying. In tax collectors in that culture, they would work for Rome. That's what Matthew did. And money went to Rome. But then also on commission, in overcharging people, he could pocket some money. If you've ever been to Chicago, you know every couple exits, you're paying something. You're paying something. And we do have tolls here. But imagine if the tolls and the sound were every time you went on 18, you had to pay $100. 405, $200, 167, $300. And people would just say, thank you, thank you, take, take. After a while, how would you feel towards those people? You'd say, I'm getting ripped off. This isn't right. Something's wrong. That's how people felt about tax collectors. They were despised, looked down upon, tax collectors and sinners. They were banned from the synagogue. That's who Matthew is. And as he's living out that life, uh, he's all about himself. He's on the throne of his own life. And Jesus says, follow me, which means there's going to be a shift on the throne. Now, instead of leading, he's going to follow. Jesus is going to lead. Jesus is going to be on the throne and he's going to make that shift. And Matthew would later on write the Bible. You think about his gifts, that he was exact, tax collector, kept a record of things. And now writing the gospel, he is keeping a record and telling stories and tying in Old Testament scriptures. And a lot of his gifts are now under the lordship of Jesus. You have a lot of gifts, and when you bring them under the lordship of Jesus, he's going to use you to build up the kingdom. But Matthew didn't follow Jesus because one day he wanted to write the Bible. Matthew following Jesus because he's never seen one like the Lord. He's never seen such love. He's never seen anything better. And he's heard about religion maybe, but Jesus Following Jesus, nothing would ever be better. And he's going to leave everything and follow Jesus. And what does this mean? He's going to leave idols behind. Idols, anything in our lives that are number one, we try to substitute instead of Jesus. Timothy Keller describes it this way. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll know I feel significant and secure. Jesus is the only one that brings real security, real significance in our lives. And the only place that he is going to reside would be Lord, King, Savior. And when you make that decision, joy and peace flood in. Because that's who we're designed to be. Matthew's going to make that decision, which is a bold decision. There's a lot of fishermen who followed Jesus And you know, they could think in the back of their minds, if this doesn't quite work out, if I don't like it, I can go back to fishing. But when you're a tax collector and you say, Rome, I'm out, I'm not doing it anymore, you can't go back to Rome and say, yeah, I'd like to get that job back again. That's not going to happen. In a tax collector, you think anyone wants to hire a tax collector? No one wants to be associated with tax collectors. He knows, all right, this is unemployment if this thing doesn't work. He is all in. He is risking everything. And he knows it's worth it. Right away, he understands it's not just about him. It's not me. It's we. He gets his tax collector's friends. Why? He's so in love with Jesus. He's so convinced with Jesus. He's like, you guys, you're ripping people off. You're you're on the throne of your own lives. You're all about yourself. There is something so much better. Come over to my house. Have dinner. Meet Jesus. He knows right away it's not about me. It's about we. And he has hospitality. He has courage. He's reaching out to sinners. 
And it wasn't because he took a 10-week online course. It wasn't that he waited and it's like, okay, I've got to know Jesus 20 years before I can do this on mission stuff. I've got to wait till I get a PhD and then maybe I'll start, you know, really seeing lives change. No, right away. Have you been so close to Jesus and his love so overwhelms your heart that you look at people differently and you care about their souls and his love can be contained and you're just like, come over to my house, receive some love, have some food. I want to talk to you about Jesus. That's Matthew's heart. Because he's met the one, the only one, and nothing in the earth compares and just pales in comparison. He's so full of Jesus, he wants more people to come and know Jesus. And he's alive in his faith. You say, what a transformation. You think, I bet the religious people are so excited about this. I bet the religious people just love seeing a tax collector's life changed. No, they don't. They're opposed. How do we know? Look at verse 11. When the Pharisees, they saw this, they asked his disciples, they didn't even talk to Jesus, they went to the disciples and say, why does your teacher, and they're not calling him the savior of the world, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? You can just hear, can't you, accusing, slandering, not liking, threatened by, you hear religious hearts in that question. And that's, they're going to oppose Jesus. And whenever you want to really follow Jesus and live for Jesus and reach people for Jesus, there's going to be opposition. Sometimes it's in our own hearts and it's our own fears and worries. And we try to protect our reputation and we try to protect everything. And so we feel that opposition. Sometimes it'll be the people around us. It'll be religious people who come in and they slam and they criticize. Notice Jesus doesn't come to avoid religious people. He doesn't, or sinners. He doesn't come to avoid sinners. He doesn't come to scorn sinners. He comes to have dinner with, lunch with, friends with, associate with, care for, pursue people who are involved in sin. And the religious people, they just don't get this. And before we look down upon the Pharisees, all of us have the temptation every day to feel a little bit self-righteous and to judge other people and to avoid sinners in an unhealthy way. Now, there's times in relationships where it's healthy to have a little distance because bad company can corrupt good character and a little distance can be wise, but this isn't good distance. This is unhealthy distance. And this is such a distance and looking down upon and Jesus knows this is a religious heart. And what they're basically saying is that Jesus, you're not religious enough. Have you ever been around religious people that accuse you, and the basic message is, you're not religious enough. And religious people will always have to create their own measuring sticks, create their own check boxes, and religious people will always see themselves as ultra-religious, and then they'll look down on their people, and they'll send the message, you are not religious enough. And because Jesus spends time with tax collectors, nope, he's clearly not religious enough. You will never measure up with religious people. A true dead religious heart, you will never measure up. No one can. And what do they say to Jesus? Essentially, Jesus, your bar is too low. For we are religious and our bar's up here. And God would only be interested in people who can jump over our bar. But Jesus, you've lowered the bar so low that you're down there with the tax collectors. That's how far you brought the bar down. And religious people, Pharisees, who've never experienced the love of God, 
don't know the love of God, don't bring the love of God to other people, are saying, Jesus, your bar's too low, you're not religious enough, here's the criticism. And I'll tell you, it'll be painful, but sometimes it'll be the religious people who criticize you the most when you're following the Lord. And they did it to him, and they'll do it to us. And Jesus is essentially bringing a love that can't be contained in just the temple, and his love is going to reach all nations, all people. Nobody's too low. That doesn't, there's no such thing. God loves all people. And what Jesus' message to the religious, there's a lot of tension here, but the message to the religious people from Jesus is you don't love people like I love people. That's the message to the religious folks. You don't love people like I love people. You don't. You don't get it. And so Jesus calls us to himself to be loved, to be filled with his love, and to love people like he loves people. And following Jesus is not a popularity contest. The goal is not acceptance. And when you have freedom from what people think and freedom from people's criticism, you're now freed up to love people, to receive love from Jesus, and the world will change through Jesus. And, and that's a big shift right here. The religious leaders, they're not going to want to go there. They love the religion. They don't love Jesus and people as much. Uh, look at what Jesus does to summarize this interaction, this tension. In Matthew 9, verse 12, on hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but I have come to call sinners. He quotes from the Old Testament here, Hosea and Gomer. Hosea is a prophet. His wife, Gomer, is not faithful, cheats on her husband again and again, and then goes into prostitution. God says to Hosea, go back into the prostitution line, pay for your wife, redeem, buy back your wife out of prostitution, and they're going to be restored in the marriage. And it was a picture of the spiritual condition of Israel at that time. They were adulterous. They were not faithful to God. And yet they continued to bring sacrifices to the temple. They continued to be religious, but they were so far from God. And God says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I'm not just wanting you to do religious duties. I want you to have a relationship. I want you to be full of Jesus. And so it's about receiving his mercy. And it's, it's about his mercy. It's not about religious motions and impressing people and looking religious on the outside. And Jesus says, you don't understand it because healthy, sick, sick, healthy. And we read that, we're like, what's going on? It sounds like, wait a minute, healthy isn't good here, but we want to be healthy. How is healthy not good? How is sick? How does this play out? This is the meaning. Jesus is talking about who knows they need Jesus. And people who think, oh, I've already got it. I've got life. I've got righteousness. I've got holiness. I'm all that. I'm already so healthy. Why would I need a doctor? Why would I need a Messiah? Why would I need a Savior? But those who know they sin, those who know they're sinners, those who know they need a Savior and need him every day and need him a whole lot, that's the one Jesus is going to come to and change their life. 
The picture of spiritual maturity is not every decade you need Jesus a little less and a little less and a little less. The picture of spiritual maturity, biblical spiritual maturity, is you realize God is holy and I'm not holy and I need him in my marriage. I need him at my work. I need him every day. I need him every time I pick up the Bible. I need the Lord. I need the Lord. And those are the ones that Jesus says, I see their hearts and I'll come. And the world might call them sick, but they know how much they need me and I'm going to be there. I'm going to do amazing things in their lives. The ones who drop their pride, that's the one. You say, well, what is this sin and sinner? Sinner, a few definitions. It's someone who's lost, someone who's in rebellion, someone who's disloyal, someone who's unclean, offenders, missing the mark, treason, wretchedness is what they're, they're diving into because uh, all of us sin, the Bible says. It's not just that section or this section or this. All of us sin, and we have a very skewed vision of sin. This is what sin is, to understand more of it, the fullness of it. Sometimes uh, we'll do something that's sinful, like worrying. The Bible says, do not worry. But we worry. And now you can look at that and say, that's behavioral modification that's needed. Stop worrying. And sometimes we think that's our view of sin. No, no, no. The action is tied to something much deeper. We worry because our view of God is so off. And we don't believe that God is trustworthy. So we're going to take things and worry because we're not trusting God. In sin, yes, there's action involved, but ultimately it's an assault on God's character. You say, what about lust? Lust, there's actions. Our culture is filled with actions tied in that are based on lust. Well, what's really going on? We don't believe God brings satisfaction. We're not going to go to Jesus for living water. So we're going to chase what we want to chase, how we want to get it, and run that direction. Why? Our view of God is off. Unforgiveness, resentment. Yeah, that's sin. But it's because we don't believe God will take care of things in the end and that he's just and that he's in control. So I'm going to try to get revenge my own way. What we need when we repent, repent means come home, come home. It's a good thing. Repentance brings refreshment. And it's not just simply, I'll try to clean up. I'll try to clean up. It's no, God, I need a view of you that's healthy, that's right, that's good. God, I am so sorry for viewing you as powerless, as not trustworthy, as one who doesn't satisfy, that I so need to do these things. They're wrong. God, change me, my view of you, so that my actions will change as well. I want to have a healthy relationship with you, God. And he comes running to bring us home and forgive us and pour out mercy. And by the way, when you put your trust in Jesus, you don't read in the Bible that we keep getting called sinners, sinners, sinners. No, we're called saints. It's because of who we are. That's our new identity in the Lord. What does saints mean? It means holy ones. How are we holy? Because of Jesus' blood was the full payment for sins. And so now we're saints. We're saints who still sin, still sin, redeemed, still need to repent. We still sin every day. We're not in denial about that, but we know our identity. Sin is not our identity. It's not our identity. It's a description of what we do sometimes. It's wrong. We'll call sin, sin. We won't water it down, but our identity is in the Lord, secure, accepted, forgiven, and he also heals and builds us up. That's what Jesus is doing here in this passage. And I'm so encouraged because I see this hunger for Jesus. And more than seven things, a relationship with Jesus. I, this is a picture. 
gathering together with some local pastors. That was at the start. And coming together, we ate together. And we get together regularly now. We're praying together. We're building each other up. We're praying for each other's churches. We're seeking Jesus together. We're praying for the greater Auburn area. Here's another picture. This is from this week. And this is a gathering. These are all pastors from the sound who are coming and worshiping together and seeking Jesus together and crying out for an awakening in the sound that God would do something he's never done before. That's this week. Someone else took the picture. I was down there uh, praying. And, and you know, I see Tuesday nights at six o'clock and there's a gathering, a hunger for Jesus, a uniting together, a seeking Jesus. This is Jesus's heart that we would realize there's nothing better than Jesus. We'd realize how much we need Jesus. We would walk with Jesus. We'd be filled with his love. We wouldn't be religious folks. We'd be Jesus people. And, and that God would do something so wonderful then and now and uh, forever he'd get the glory. That's the heart when we talk about discipleship path. I, I know here's seven things and seven sounds like a lot. Here's kind of a funny picture. We were taking a walk on a date at Elkai Beach, my wife and I, and uh, walking past, there's someone with seven dogs. I'd never seen that before. Uh, they passed us here. I was trying to be polite as they were approaching and not take a picture, but once they passed, I thought, yeah, I got to take a picture of this. Seven all together. It works. Dogs can figure it out. Dogs are doing it. Seven together. It's going to feel like a lot thinking about these seven, but these are all biblical and they're all from God's heart. We're going to see these all in action. Turn to Acts chapter 16. It's our other passage today. And uh, it's always great to look at God's word on your phone, uh, device, or bring a Bible. I like having a copy in my hand too. Um, I'm going to read some verses here in Acts chapter 16 and see if you notice all seven in just this short passage. Starting in verse 22, the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open. Everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up. When he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We're all here. And the jailer called for the lights. He rushed in. He fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in the house. And at that hour of the night, the jailer took them, washed their wounds. Then immediately, he and his family were baptized. The jailer broke, brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. We see salvation, the, the jailer and his family. We see baptism right after salvation. We see a church is forming in Philippi. There'll be a, a person named Lydia who joins them, who, very wealthy businesswoman, came to know the Lord. A servant girl who had a demon in her. Demon was driven out. God's building a church there, joining that church. A life group in the home, they're gathering. Serving starts to happen, serving meals. And we see here, 
Paul and Silas, what are they doing? They're making new disciples. They're making disciples and then leadership. And there'll be new leadership in that church. And it'll continue. All seven wrapped into this one. And where did it start? A group of people wanting to abide with the Lord. We say we, in this passage we read, Luke, the author of Luke and Acts, was uh, with Paul, Silas. It was a group of people abiding. And abiding is where it starts. When you think about abiding, you might have an image in your mind. And it might be that you wake up and the sun's out and you sit in your most comfortable chair and then you have your favorite hot drink and a comfortable blanket and you turn on a little music and you just abide with the Lord. And that could be part of abiding. That's a great thing. Morning ritual, morning uh, routine, seeking the Lord, that's great. But abiding as the day goes on is gonna start to really take on a lot of different shapes and places and forms. What's the reality about abiding? We see in this passage, you can be abiding in very mistreated. Abiding with Jesus, very mistreated. Paul and Silas are attacked and beaten, nearly killed. This is a bloody scene right here. They're close to death and they're abiding, mistreated. You can be abiding and praising the Lord. No one can steal your joy. Worship's a decision. And no matter what they're going through and however they've been mistreated, they're going to praise the Lord because no one can take away the most important things in life. The things that can be taken away are less important. So they're gonna praise the Lord. It's gonna influence other people. When you abide, you influence. You never know who's listening and watching you when you abide. I got a note from 20 years ago, someone I hadn't talked to and said 20 years ago, uh, he was a college student in the ministry and he said, your passion for the Lord, it just had such an impact on me. Well, 20 years later now, he's planting a church planting a church. You don't know when you're living for Lord and abiding, who's watching, listening, what God's doing and how that's going to play out in the years to come. The, they're listening to Paul and Silas, worship the Lord at midnight. That doesn't usually happen. And then as you abide, there's going to be breakthroughs. There was a, an earthquake and the prisoners were set free. Then they're going to go into a Gentile home, Jews and Gentiles, cultural barriers broken down, coming together in homes. Breakthroughs happen when we abide and they start to minister to the jailer. When you abide, God will lead you to people who are in despair, yes. who feel hopeless, and some people who are thinking about taking their lives. You might be surprised how many of your Facebook friends right now are in a really low place, maybe even thinking about suicide. Maybe it's some of your neighbors thinking about suicide. And when you abide, God's going to show you this person. Go to this person. Encourage them. Show them love. Care for them. Say this. God's going to guide you like he does here. You're going to bring the gospel because the gospel changes lives. Laws don't ultimately change lives. The gospel changes lives. I heard that one out of every seven people in our culture are now battling with addiction. Well, God, the gospel breaks us free from the strongholds of sin. Uh, the gospel is for the one who uh, is working, has six-figure income, and is lonely, soul is doing miserable. The gospel's the answer. The gospel's the answer for every nation and culture, every generation, the gospel. So we bring the gospel, we see healing, families restored, family transformation in our homes. May there be family healing, family transformation, like we see here. And you know what? Abiding is a stretch. When you abide with Jesus, you're going to be in new spots. You're going to be out on a limb. This week, I did something I've never done before, and it was a lunch. I was invited to a lunch, seven pastors, seven rabbis, seven imams. And it wasn't an interfaith gathering saying that we all believe the same thing, because we don't. Uh, it was a gathering where it's multi-faith, 
where we clearly say, no, we don't believe the same thing. I follow Jesus, Lord and Savior, risen from the dead. They don't believe he's the Messiah, the Savior of the world. So we don't hide those differences, but we respect each other. And I had the opportunity to share about Jesus with different imams and just great discussion and sharing my story with different imams. I was out on a limb. I, I felt stretched. What's this game going to be like? I, I, and so we abide and we say yes to the Lord. I got a, an, a letter this week from someone in Monroe prison. I'm so grateful for our teams that go out to the prisons, go out to Monroe, and I and praise the Lord for the teams. And uh, I got a letter this week from someone who just shared their life story in a letter and said, I grew up in Tacoma. I did the worst things. I was a gangbanger and just went into detail about what went on. But you know what? I've come to know the Lord in prison. I want to live for the Lord. I'm moving to East Washington. Where's a good church? How can I grow? You know, and, and God's doing it. In prisons in Acts 16, in prison today, Chuck Smith, who's a, you know, a well-known pastor in California, so faithful to the Lord, uh, he watched his dad as a volunteer chaplain go to the Ventura a prison and reach out, bring the gospel. And there were two prisoners that were so skeptical about Jesus and answered a prayer. And they said, pray that we get out early. Well, his dad prayed and out of God's grace, they were released early, far beyond when they anticipated they would be released from prison. And this is what Chuck Smith's dad did. He invited him to his home for a meal. And then they didn't have a place to live. So he opened up in the garage, and let them live there for a while. Led them to Jesus. And think of the impact on Chuck Smith watching that happen, knowing that this family is all about Jesus and Jesus can change anyone's life. When you abide and you're out in a limb and you take a risk, you know what? It's connected to other people. It's never in isolation. When you say, I want to use my gifts for the Lord, you don't know how many people are going to be blessed. When you say, I want to step up and lead, you don't know what God has for you. When you share the gospel, you don't know what God's going to do, but your step of faith, your next step, it will always be linked to other people being blessed in powerful ways. That's what happens then. That's what happens now. And there's the planned stuff, and then there's the unplanned. God reveals some things, and you take that next step, and, you, and there's kind of a plan. But then God moves powerfully in the unplanned, and you continue to abide Him. Paul and Silas, they did not know what was going to happen in this prison. Unplanned, but look what God's doing. It's organic, changing lives, and it's powerful. How are we going to live? Leonard Ravenhill shares this. Five minutes inside eternity, and we will wish that we had sacrificed more, wept more, grieved more, loved and prayed more, and given more. Five minutes in heaven, what would that do to the way you live now? Five minutes in hell, what would that do to the way you live now? Jesus knows eternity, and he knows eternal realities, and that shapes the love he has now. And I believe we would live very differently. We would live like Jesus if we really took in the realities of eternity and in how much our life matters now. And so we weep, we would love, we would care, we would give, we'd be generous. Psalm 90 verse 12 is this prayer. Teach us to number our days because they go by quickly and our lives go by quickly. So God, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom to know how to live in these days and times. And God, as we're serving you, may the favor of the Lord our God rest upon us. Establish the work of our hands. Yes, God, establish the work of our hands. Uh, closeness with Jesus. Closeness with Jesus. 
and then taking the next steps. There's a story in Philippi we just read. There's a story in our church family. You know, I'm so grateful for the history of our church starting in the 1950s. Billy Graham came to Seattle to lead people to Jesus and spread the gospel all around the greater Seattle area. That's in our DNA. And you know, about 15 to 20 years ago, uh, we saw so many changed lives in our church. You know, I wasn't here, but just heard so many stories about people coming from all over the region and getting in God's word and the transformation and coming to the Lord. And it was powerful what God was doing. You know, mega church is the phrase uh, people use when a church is really growing and bigger. Uh, well, that's what was happening. And then you know what else is in our history? We had maybe seven, eight years or so of just decline. People leaving, going. About 70% of people left our church. And uh, so grateful for the ones staying faithful, stayed seeking Jesus. But 70%? Like, that's pretty significant what happened during those years. But you know what's happened the last four years? God is bringing this renewal and it's all about Jesus and this is what he's doing and he's waking up people and he's, the church is held and the church is alive. The church, the lives are being changed and people are coming. We've just seen steady for four years. You say, what's happening? People returning to Jesus, more of Jesus, glorified Jesus and taking next steps. I want to get saved. I want to get baptized. I want to serve. I want to get in a group. I want to lead. I'm ready. Jesus is leading me. We listen to his voice, not the stranger's voice and we take next steps in our relationship with him. Today is going to be an opportunity to take a next step. How is God guiding you as you abide? What would that next step be? I remember it was about five years ago when Lori and I were praying about um, coming here and what does God want? We had just started an adoption process that meant we couldn't leave California for a good six months. And it just didn't seem like, you know, logical time to come, but God was leading and it was time. And this song, Oceans, was one of those songs that God used to say, no, it's time to step forward, to, to take that next step, to go to Seattle. Well, right now I'm going to invite the prayer team, the elders to come forward just across the front right here. We're going to worship as the praise team's going to lead us in the song, Oceans. And uh, this is what's going to happen. It's not going to be emotionalism. It's not going to be weird. You're not going to have to say anything. But you just simply come forward. Think of these seven opportunities to take a next step. Are you here today and you haven't really put your trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord? Are you ready to do that? Ready to get baptized? Ready to have a church home? Tired of just doing, ah, uh, doing the church search, doing the church search. I kind of go to four churches. Sometimes I go, sometimes I don't. Just have a church home. Get in a group. Start serving. Make disciples. Say, so, you know what? I'm not making disciples. I'm just caught up in so much busyness and this, but you know, I'm not really making disciples. Jesus said the main thing is to make disciples. I want to make disciples. You come forward. You say, Jesus, I want to do that. Leadership. What is God stirring you to do? So when you come forward, all you have to say is your name and your next step. If I was, one, if I was ready to get baptized, I would just come forward and say, Jesse, baptism. And that person's going to pray for you. And we'll just write down your name and baptism so we can guide you and walk with you in that next step. Let me pray. God, lead and guide this time as we worship you, as you call us, Jesus, to follow you and to not hold back, but with all of our hearts. We see Matthew's example. We see Paul and Silas. We want to be a healthy church, a healthy people, healthy souls, trusting you with our lives, taking next steps. Guide this time right now, Lord. Guide your people. Guide us in next steps. Be glorified, Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen.